yesterday, uh, Lindsay and I had the opportunity to travel to Charlotte, North Carolina um, for a memorial service. Actually, they called it a celebration of life uh, for one of our friends, a friend that we had made in our days in Houston uh, some years back. Our paths crossed, and we were part of the same church uh, there in West Houston. And then the Lord sent us to Baltimore and then sent them to Charlotte, and so we'd been in different places. And um, at any rate, our friend uh, Becky uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, early last year and then uh, passed away just before Christmas uh, in December. And so at their church in North Carolina, they were holding a, a service uh, for, for Becky. And, uh, and so I reached out uh, to them and, and just asked if it would be helpful if I came and provided some music and, and leadership for the service. And, and they welcomed that. And so Lindsay and I were, were able to go and, and be a part of that service. And it's always interesting at a service like that where you're reflecting on the life of somebody that is now, at least in this mortal earthly sense, has come to a close, right? You're looking back and, and considering what kind of life they lived. And there was a portion of the service that was an, you know, an open mic kind of a sharing time. Anybody could come forward and share a memory or a thought or something about Becky that was meaningful to them or whatever. And um, there were a lot of people who, who shared and so as you're listening to people kind of reflect on the way that they knew Becky, um, there were common threads that started to emerge. And, uh, and these were people who, who knew her from different phases of life. Of course, uh, Lindsay and I knew her you know, from our time in Houston years back, and there was another friend from Houston that was there, and there were people that uh, knew her from the church it, that they were a part of in North Carolina, and they ministered to international students. And so they were different, you know, from different phases and different sort of arenas of her life. But as they were sharing, there began to be th- th- this common theme that all the, these multiple people from different seasons of her life all gave testimony to the same thing that they saw in Becky's life, and that was joy. They saw joy. We all saw it. And it was as people were saying, you know, the thing that I noticed about Becky was just this infectious joy, this like love for others and this joyful. Ev- there was this sense in the room, that, like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I recognize that. I, I saw that. And so it was as though we were all gathered to look at Becky's life and, and we could agree right, on, on certain things about her that we could give thanks for and that we could remember fondly and give praise to God for. And so that collective sort of looking and agreeing, this is worth praise. This is worthy of, of note. Um, Peter has it in mind for the church to do something very similar to that. Uh, in our passage today. So we're in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is what we'll cover. And it's as though Peter intends for Christians to look together at the grace of God imparted to us through Christ and to agree God is worthy of praise. And we know that because he begins in verse 3 with just such a phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with praise, and then the rest of this paragraph is just reasons that we have to praise God. It's things that we look at together and agree God is worthy of praise. In fact, in the original Greek, this paragraph is one big, long, clunky, run-on sentence. Like the fact that there's commas and periods and things like that in our translations is just English uh, uh, translators trying to make sense and go, okay, well, this won't make sense to an English audience if we just 
put it in exactly the way that Peter did, but it's as though Peter gets caught up in just worshiping and magnifying God for his incredible grace. And so the, the sense of this text is, is just worship. So as we go through the things that he enumerates for us, why we ought to praise God, the goal of it and the end result of it should be, by God's grace, worship. Just praise be to God. He gives us three things. So if this theme and the framework of the, of the passage is praise, blessed be God, he gives us three key aspects of his grace that he wants us to, to worship God and give thanks for. Uh, there, there's the aspect of security, the aspect of suffering, and then the aspect of fulfillment. Security, suffering, and fulfillment. We'll take those one at a time as, as we walk through this passage. But I'd like to go ahead and read for you all 12 verses. It's not 12 verses, it's about 10 verses, 3 down through 12. Uh, and then we'll walk through uh, one portion of it at a time. So let me read beginning in verse, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Security, suffering, and fulfillment. Let's look at these one at a time. The first cause for praise in verses 3 through 5 is the indestructible security of our inheritance. The salvation that he has purchased for us is utterly certain, utterly secure. It begins in describing it as being according to his mercy. In other words, by his mercy. And then he says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that ought to be self-evident. That ought to be uh, 
common sense. No one can make themselves born, right? You had no choice over the timing of your birth or the place of your birth or what parents you would be born to or who would be in your family, right? This was work that took place outside of your control. And the same is true, Peter says here, with our spiritual rebirth, with being born again. It is by the doing of God. Remember that he told us in the opening verses of this chapter that he's writing to elect exiles. That is, the people who have been chosen by God to belong to him and now are living as foreigners and aliens in a strange and hostile world. That's, that's the, the context in which this letter is written. And so just as we've been chosen by God and set apart for himself... He reminds us here that even the hope that we've been born to, born again to, is by his mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Jesus made much the same point in John chapter 3 when he spoke to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused and took that literally. How could I possibly... Be born again, can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? And of course, as Jesus goes on, we learn he's not speaking of a natural or literal physical birth. He's speaking of the work of the Spirit of God. And he says, just like the wind, you can't see it. You can't predict where it's going or where it's coming from. But you see its effects. And so it is with all those who are born of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God grants rebirth. And it's this new birth that brings us into all the blessings that Peter begins to enumerate for us. So at the very outset, he wants us to see it's the work of God that we have these things to be thankful for. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And we've been born again to two things. The first thing he says is that we've been born again to a living hope. A living hope. Now, hope, as Peter understands it and as the New Testament speaks of it, is not a wishful thinking, pie in the sky, hope this works out kind of a hope. It is a revealed truth. It is a certain future that we know is coming. And so when he says that we've been born to a living hope, he doesn't mean we've been made into sort of eternal optimists. He means we have been given a certain future that is not able to be shaken or destroyed. We've been born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Christ's defeating of death and rising from the dead, becoming the, the, the firstborn among many brothers, as, uh, as Paul says elsewhere. This is what purchases for us this living hope. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we have this future inheritance that's coming for us. And that's, he begins to spell that out. Here's the second thing. We've been born to a living hope. And then down in verse 4, we've been born again to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Of course, an inheritance is what you have coming to you by virtue of your sonship, right? So my inheritance, earthly speaking, is whatever my parents leave to me, 
right? After they've passed away, whatever they've set aside or stored up and said, this is for my son, that becomes my inheritance. It's, it's what they leave for me that then becomes rightfully mine. And so when we're thinking here of spiritual and eternal realities, he is saying that because you belong to him, because you're his people, he has secured for you an inheritance. There's belonging. There's a set of something that is yours. It's got your name on it. It's in heaven, and it belongs to you at the right time. And so then what is this inheritance like? He spells it out for us in a few ways. Number one, he tells us of the character of this inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What does imperishable mean? Never dies. Cannot die. Undefiled. It is pure. It is without spot, without blemish. It is exactly as it's intended and designed to be. Unfading. It never rusts. It never gets old. It never breaks. You know, And ev- that's virtually unknown to us. Everything that we've ever had that we thought was so beautiful and shiny and wonderful and new at some point is junk, right? Every car you've ever driven, every home you've ever owned or rented or lived in, everything you've ever had at some point was like, wow, this is new and wonderful. And then at some point down the road, it's falling apart. It's trash. It's in a junk heap. Not so with this inheritance that he is storing up for us. It never dies, it is pure, and it never rusts or fades. Where is this inheritance? He tells us it is kept in heaven for you. So we're not talking about things that we get right now. And there, right there is a little bit of a tension for us sometimes because a lot of times when we think of, uh, when Christians speak of new life in Jesus, There's a a temptation to see all of these blessings coming to us right now. And so people will begin to think, well, if I believe in Jesus or if I have enough faith in Jesus, he'll just give me everything that I want. He'll make me truly and utterly and unshakably happy, right? Or I'll always be healthy or I'll never be in financial need, Right? That's the kinds of errors that can start to creep up when we think of the inheritance that is ours and we're trying to get it too soon. We're like, give it to me now. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. This inheritance, you can't even imagine how amazing it is and how full and complete it is, but it, it's not all yours yet. It's yours, but it, you got to wait for it. Right? It's being kept. It's guarded. It's in heaven for you. And it is being guarded for us by God, which is amazing to think about. So this inheritance, the inheritance that has your name on it, because you belong to Jesus Christ, is guarded by God himself. The things that we think are important, we protect, right? We put our money into a bank because we figure people can't get to that money if they're not supposed to. And then even if somebody does get to that money when they're not supposed to, the bank is insured. And so that insurance means that I'm not going to just be out that money. The government or whatever is going to step in and, and pay for, for that, uh, that loss. right? So we, we protect things that are precious to us. This is valuable. We're going to guard it. God himself is guarding our inheritance. 
There is no bank robber or no security hacker that could possibly figure out how to get around Almighty God. If God is personally guarding your inheritance, it's sure, it's safe, it's secure. I think Peter wants his readers to know that. Remember, they're undergoing trial and hardship and persecution for their faith in Christ. And so he's saying, listen, no matter what happens, no matter how much they threaten you, no matter how much they take from you, even if they kill you, right? Martin Luther's great hymn, The Body They May Kill, God's truth abideth still, right? Even if they take your life, Disinheritance is yours. It's not going anywhere. God is guarding it. He is guarding it for a salvation. We're going to skip ahead just a touch and come back to a phrase. He says, it's kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So once again, we have a reference here to this is a a future event. And he speaks just a few verses later of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Down in verse 7, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is at the appearing of Christ. When he returns and we see him, he's revealed to us in the flesh. That is when this inheritance becomes ours. That is when it is unlocked and given to us in full. It is imperishable. It is guarded for us by God, and it's ready to be revealed in this last time. So, but not only, notice, not only is the inheritance being guarded, we are being guarded. Look at verse 5. He had just said that we've been born into an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Verse 5. Who, this is us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation is the inheritance, this full and final and complete salvation in the presence of God, all its glory, the praise, the glory, the honor, and all of that is wrapped up in this. And all that is coming, but for now, we are being guarded by God's power. We are being guarded by God's power. I don't know about you, but I often feel the desperate need to be guarded by God, to be kept by God. I am weak. I am prone to failure and to selfishness and to short-sightedness and to foolishness. I need to know that God is keeping me that God is guarding and preserving me because he has his inheritance with my name on it. And in the meantime, I've got to run this race that he's given to me to run. And it's hard, right? There's, there's suffering and hardship that come. That's what we'll get to in just a second. But in the meantime, God is guarding and preserving and keeping me so that when that day comes, I'll be ready to receive the inheritance that is mine. Well, how is he guarding us? We know we have the power of God underneath us, keeping us, preserving us, guarding us. Look at this little phrase. You are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. Through faith. So the way that Christians 
endure to the end and receive the inheritance is by active, continuing faith. That is the means that God uses to guard his people, to keep them in the faith. There is a a responsibility on the part of God's people to remain faithful to him, to carry out the commands of Christ as best we can, to lean on him, to come to him in repentance when we fail and stumble, to lean on brothers and sisters in Christ. We are being guarded by God through faith. In other words, the way that Christians receive this eternal inheritance is by remaining in the faith. And the power behind our persevering faith is God's active work because he's guarding us. So you've got two sides of a coin that spell out our persevering, our security, and this inheritance is coming to us. On the one side is the responsibility for us to remain in the faith, to keep trusting him, to keep leaning on him, to keep pursuing him. And on the other side of that coin and underneath it all is God's keeping power. He's guarding us. So it's his ability that gives us, the, that makes it possible for us to remain in the faith. If it's up to us, if God's like, I hope you do okay, we're not going to last very long, are we? When the heat is on, I'm running off. When persecution comes, I'm going to just deny, like Peter himself had done on the night that Jesus was crucified. Nope, I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples, right? That's probably true of all of us at some point. If God is not actively empowering and enabling our keeping, preserving faith. So I think there's there's two applications to this, depending on what your soul is, uh, how your soul is inclined. So I'll leave that to you and the Holy Spirit to sort out. But to those who are inclined toward laziness or apathy or, you know, kind of a confidence, uh, an unfounded confidence that everything's going to be fine, I think this would say, I think the Holy Spirit would say to us, God's preserving of his people is through their persevering in faith. So an aisle that you walked or a prayer that you prayed or a box that you checked at a camp is not sufficient in itself to give you cause for confidence. If you checked a box and then haven't thought about God for 20 years since, I think this would say, You need to examine yourself and you need to remain in the faith. Remain faithful. Turn to Christ in repentance. Pursue him. Avail yourselves of the means of grace that he's given you in his word, in prayer, in the church. Remain in the faith. But to those who are inclined to be anxious, to those who second-guess themselves all the time, am I doing enough? Am I loving God enough? Am I repenting enough? Am I, am I drawing close enough to God for him to forgive me or, or, or to save me? To the anxious, I think this passage says, anxiety and insecurity need not be the lot of God's people. Your position in Christ and the eternal future that he's guarding for you are settled and certain and based on the completed work of Jesus 
in your place. So if you're the, the type that wonders, am I really saved? That worries, maybe I've sinned too much and fallen out of God's favor. You need to be reminded, God is keeping you. You're in the faith because of Christ. He caused you to be born again to a living hope. He chose you in him to be his people, and he is keeping you now for an eternal inheritance that can never die or lose its brilliance. So I think to those who are anxious, the exhortation is just trust his grace. His grace is sufficient. So Peter wants us to give praise to God for this eternal inheritance that is secure and unfading and kept for us by God. And it is that very security. It is the inheritance that we know is ours and that is coming that enables us to do the next thing that he says. And that's to rejoice in suffering. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And so he's going to call us here to give praise to God for the purifying power of suffering. To say we should give thanks for suffering on its face sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds just out of touch. Like, who could possibly, with a straight face, say, I'm so thankful for all my suffering, right? That just seems very disconnected from life and reality and the human experience, right? That's not exactly what he's saying, though. He doesn't say rejoice because of your suffering. He says you rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice despite your suffering because of the certainty of this inheritance. And more to the point, because the suffering that we endure in this life are working in our lives to strengthen and to purify our faith first thing I want to point out here is that he says that um, they've been grieved for a little while, if necessary, by various trials. So the for a little while doesn't necessarily mean your suffering is only going to be a day or two and then it'll all be better. It could frankly be an entire earthly lifetime. But in the scope of eternity, where Peter's got his eyes set, even in a whole earthly lifetime, it's just a little while. Because you get through that and then you have an unending, eternal home with Jesus. So you've been grieved for a little while, if necessary. Necessary? Why would it be necessary? In whose mind would it be necessary for Christians to suffer? I think this points us here to the divine providence and wisdom of God. The suffering that we endure in some sense is God's will for us. In fact, Peter himself says uh, later in chapter 4, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. A point that he's making later about the kinds of suffering we endure. But even there, he gives the notion that our suffering may be God's will for us. Why would suffering be God's will? Is it because he hates us? Is it because he's mad at us and he's trying to make us feel real bad about ourselves? Of course not. It's because he's doing something in us that is necessary in order to receive and enjoy the inheritance that is ours. Look at this. He says, uh, you've been grieved by various trials, and then he tells us why. 
Thank you so much for telling us why. I love it when I see the phrase, so that. Oh, it's so good to know what is on God's mind in what we suffer. Look at this, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, he's got the inheritance in view. Praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Christ. You're going to see him. You're going to celebrate him. He's actually going to honor you and praise you. That's kind of insane to think about too. And so that's what's in view. And the reason that it's necessary for us to suffer is so that our faith can be tested and proved true. The tested genuineness of your faith. So two things to note here about the, his use of this analogy of gold. So he speaks here of gold perishing though it is tested by fire. And the, the way, of course, that, that gold would be purified is to put it into a fire. And the fire would burn off all of the impurities. So that what comes out on the other side is unadulterated pure gold. And our suffering has the same effect. In God's economy, in God's wisdom, the suffering that we face, hardship, insult, loss, sorrow, the suffering we face burns away what is not faith. It burns away all the excess. It strips from us the things we may be inclined to lean on or to trust in that aren't Him. Maybe we're looking for status and reputation. Maybe we're looking for control, right? We just want to be in control of things. Maybe there's fears. Maybe, there's, uh, maybe uh, there could be all kinds of things that we sort of set our hope on, on, on riches, wealth, and, and sort of earthly security. Our suffering is intended in God's grace to strip those things away from us. Go, no, don't trust in wealth. No, don't trust in health. Don't trust in reputation. No, tr- trust me. I'm working in you. I'm guarding you. I'm keeping this inheritance for you. That's all you need to really believe. Like that song we sang earlier, with nothing, I still have everything because Jesus Christ is enough. So our sufferings are intended to have this purifying effect on our faith so that we can say, this is not home. This is not forever. This is not where my hope is. My hope is with Christ kept in heaven. The second thing he does with this analogy is to say specifically that test, the tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold. In this time, gold would have been the most valuable known resource on earth. There's things that have been discovered since then that are more valuable than gold, platinum, and whatever, various precious stones and things like that. I don't know the list. You could probably correct me about it later. But the most precious thing you could imagine that's like worth the most amount of money on planet Earth, he says, faith that is proved true, faith that's gone through the fire and emerged pure, and leaning on Christ and Christ alone and looking to this inheritance is more valuable than the most valuable thing you could imagine. It's more precious than gold. This is what suffering is supposed to do in our lives. And if we'll uh, work with God, allow God to do that in us, 
if, if we'll sort of yield to his purposes, it will. The four and a half years that, uh, that our family has been here in Maryland working to, to plant this church has been marked with suffering of, of various kinds. We're grateful for this church. We love the work that we're doing here. So I don't intend to sound like ungrateful or dissatisfied or something like that with the work God's done in this church. But there has been hardship and suffering along the way. There was loss and grief of saying goodbye to friends and community and things that we knew and, and loved from Houston. Um, there, for myself, there's just been a lot of fear and insecurity, ways that I've found I've got to step into a place where I don't feel like I'm very like equipped or qualified to do. Um, and so I've just had to kind of figure out how to do some things that, that were very scary. Um, there's been disappointments, you know, times where it looked as though uh, you know, God was at work in a person in a certain way, and then the person drifted away. Or there have been hurts and betrayal and insult and things like that that are hard to endure. But from speaking for myself, I wouldn't have necessarily written the story that way, right? If I were like, how do I want this church planning thing in Baltimore to go? It probably wouldn't include all of the insult and the betrayal and the hurt and the loss and the disappointment, right? It would look a lot more just like kind of rosy and good. But in God's wisdom and in God's grace, on the other side of those sufferings, and I'm not saying that they're over, <laughs> but where I stand right now, I can see God has made me depend much more on him. God has taught me things about myself where I was so controlling and desperate to sort of make things happen a certain way. And now I go, I don't have any control over anything. I can't make anybody respond a certain way. I can't make a relationship go the way I want the relationship to go. I can't make the church grow the way I want the church to grow. It's all out of my hands, right? And so I find myself not going, well, whatever, but just trusting God more and going, you, got, you can handle this, God. I just want to be faithful with what you've given me to do, and you just take care of the rest. And whatever happens, I'll trust you then too. And I'm, I'm more able to say that now than I would have been four and a half years ago because of the hardship and the suffering and the trials that have come along with this journey of church planting. That's what suffering is supposed to do. And comparatively, I know that I've suffered much less than even some of the people in this room. So I don't want to like, paint my suffering as this you know, enormous sort of poster of what it looks like to suffer faithfully. But that's just a way in my own life. I've seen God faithfully use hardship to purify and to, to burn away all of the excess that is not him. So I want to encourage you today, and I think Peter and the Spirit of God want to encourage us here. Your suffering is not meaningless. There is no meaningless suffering. You might be inclined to think that the hardships you're going through are useless and senseless. Not in God's world. Not in God's kingdom. There's no senseless suffering. Suffering is producing something. Suffering is working something out in your life. Especially suffering that you endure on account of your faith in Christ. And that's what Peter is getting at real narrowly here, saying because of your faith in Christ, you're receiving this hardship. I think the truth is, is applicable beyond that. But hardship that we face is being used by your Father to draw you nearer to Him, to make you purer, to increase your capacity to know and enjoy Him now and forever. Lindsay and I were talking about this 
passage last night, and she said this phrase that I wanted to share with you. She says, our suffering is evidence of guardianship. Right? God is keeping us. And if God is guarding us, right, preserving us by enabling us to persevere in faith, then the suffering that purifies us is evidence that we're his. It's evidence that God's at work in us, that, we're, that he is our guardian. You know you belong to him because you know that he is using your suffering to prepare you as a spotless offering. And we don't have time to go to this passage, but Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27 would be a great one to bookmark and read later. This is what Christ has done for the church to present the church to himself as a spotless uh, bride without blemish or wrinkle or spot. This is the, that's the bride that he needs, that he deserves. And he's working our purity out through our suffering. And he says there in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. I think there's a clear reference there to, well, Peter had seen him, right? Peter had been with him a long time, was his closest disciple. But you haven't. So he said that to his first generation Christian readers here. Same thing's true of us. We haven't seen him, but you love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. And you don't now see him because he's back in heaven. None of us see him now. But you rejoice. You believe in him and rejoice. And I'm reminded, and I, I wonder if Peter didn't have in his own mind the words of Jesus to his disciples after he had raised. When he met with them and Thomas was so slow to believe, unless I touch the wounds and put my hand inside, I won't believe that he's risen. And so Jesus said, here, touch the wounds, put your hand right there. And then Thomas believed, because what else was he going to do? And Jesus said, you have believed because you have seen. And I say, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, that's us. We haven't seen him, but we believe. And Jesus said, that's better. That guy is blessed. The one who believes in me without seeing me is blessed. Because that faith and that persevering in faith is what will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You do not now see him, but you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, like kind of hard to describe, I think is what he means there. Because you're rejoicing in the midst of suffering? That doesn't make sense, right? It's difficult to explain why you'd rejoice in the midst of your sufferings, except for I'm knowing Jesus better this way. I'm getting closer to seeing him. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we give thanks to God, praise to God for the purifying power of suffering. And we remember as we go through hardship, he's at work here. He's using this. This is not God abandoning me. This is not God punishing me. This is God purifying me, making me more like him, drawing me nearer to him. And as we suffer, we know that God is fulfilling in us his promises through Christ because of what he tells us in verses 10 through 12, namely, all of the promises that he has made for ages have been met in Jesus Christ and were intended for you. The fulfillment of his promises, the fulfillment of 
ages of prophecy. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, which salvation? Well, the one he's just been enumerating, the salvation that is, uh, that is purchased by Christ, that is guarded for us by God, kept in heaven for us, that is waiting for us at the revelation of Jesus, right? That salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets. So now we're looking at the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Obadiah, all those guys, right? Ezekiel. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They searched and inquired carefully. So the prophecies that we read in the Old Testament, many of which concern the coming of a deliverer, the coming of a Messiah, of a promised one, the grace of that Messiah was to be ours. They, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And they searched and inquired carefully. They're, so they're making these prophecies, right? Because God speaks to them. They speak the word to the people. And they are wondering themselves, when are these prophecies going to be fulfilled? That, that language there, what person or time, uh, there's, uh, the Greek behind that is a little strange. Uh, it could be something like what time or what type of time. In other words, what, like what specific time and what age maybe specific, more broadly. Um, but the point there is that they are searching and inquiring and wondering when will God fulfill his promises and send this deliverer. And I got to think that they were hoping against hope. It'd be in their own day, right? When Isaiah prophesies that the servant is going to come and redeem Israel, you got to think he's going, are we going to see that? Is that in my lifetime? Is that for me? But look at this. It was revealed to them, this is down in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ not only apply to us, they were intended for us. Like God spoke to prophets in the Old Testament thousands of years ago with us in mind, knowing it would be us who would be the recipients of his grace. The prophets are serving not themselves. That is, this isn't necessarily about things that you're going to see and experience. It's for those who will not see and yet will believe in Jesus Christ. We are the intended recipients of that grace. God had you in mind well before Jesus ever came. God had you in mind when he made promises and prophecies to ancient Israel concerning a deliverer, knowing you'd be the ones that would see that, that, that receive that fulfillment in full and would be able to Receive the, the written revelation of God that tells us the story of Christ and his sufferings and the cross and the resurrection and, and, and know about how we could simply have trust and faith in him and have eternal life. It's, it's to us. It's for us. And I think in the midst of that, Peter gives us something of a primer on how to read the Old Testament. Because he reads the Old Testament with a very Jesus-centered lens. 
right? He's like the prophecies of the Old Testament, like they had some immediate relevance to the people. It's not like they were meaningless to Israel, but their ultimate fulfillment was Christ. And we ought to look at the Old Testament in the same way, contrary to the opinion of some out there who are encouraging Christians to stop reading the Old Testament altogether. And so we really need to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and just focus on Jesus. We don't need all that stuff about ancient Israel. I think Peter would say, are you kidding? You're missing a whole era of God's grace intended for you if you leave that out. And you're also missing things that, can, that pertain to Jesus and his coming and his ministry and his grace. So we ought to read the Old Testament. And we ought to read the Old Testament Christianly. That is, we're looking in the Old Testament for Christ. Where do we see him? Where do we see this grace promised to us? Another thing to observe about this, uh, this passage here and the fulfillment of promises. Notice who it is that's responsible. Who it is that empowers the, the word of prophecy to the Old Testament prophets and the preaching of the good news in our own time. Look at this. He says in verse 11 that the prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. The Spirit of Christ, referring to the Holy Spirit of God, connecting him to Christ there, and that that's the the purpose of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is is to point to and witness to to Jesus. So the spirit of Christ in them is predicting the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. And then look down at verse 12. It was revealed to them, they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So there's good news, this gospel message. How did they preach it? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The very same spirit spoke to the Old Testament prophets concerning the coming Messiah and that same spirit announces the gospel message to us today. When we hear Christ has died for sins and Christ was raised and if you'll trust in Him, you'll have eternal life, we're hearing a message empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and it's the very same spirit that empowered those prophets in Old Testament Israel to speak of the coming of Christ. This is not like the mall Santa, right? Where we know that the Santa that shows up at Towson Town Center is not the same Santa that's at the Rockefeller Center in New York City, right? It's those different guys that are like, they kind of look like Santa, but they're different. That's not the case with the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and the gospel. It's the very same Holy Spirit thousands of years ago that was prophesying about grace that would be ours now that is now speaking to us and to our hearts in the good news that if we'll trust Christ, repent of sin, we'll be saved. It's the same Spirit across the ages. So the the prophets didn't experience that grace in the way they hoped to. Not to say that God was without grace and kindness to them. And in their own day, certainly he was grace, gracious to them. But they didn't experience the grace in the way they wanted to. But there's another group that shows up at the very end of this passage. That is 
remarkable, that also wonder, that also wish they knew exactly what it meant to receive this redeeming grace through Christ. You notice who that is? Very last phrase, things into which angels long to look. You ever thought you know more than the angels do? There's an old song by Stephen Curtis Chapman that's, that, that he says, I know things the angels only wish they knew. And it's obviously about this verse. The grace that we've received in the coming of Jesus and his giving of his life for our sins, his rising from the dead to defeat death, and the invitation now to receive new life, the rebirth that he causes for his people, all of this grace and this inheritance and salvation that's coming and that's set aside and has your name on it, the angels wish they knew what that was like. <laughs> They're God's holy messengers. They live in heaven with him in glory. And they look at what we experience and go, man, I wonder what that's like. Isn't that amazing? The privilege that is ours as believers in Jesus Christ is inexpressible and so Peter says praise God the fulfillment of all of these promises is yours Jesus Christ is the answer to all of the promises that he made to his people and you are the recipients of that grace you are the intended audience for that kindness so what What's the outcome of all this? What's the result of all this? Point you back to verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. I'd love to give you a list of like do this and do that other thing, right? Just worship. This ought to lead us to worship God as we look at the incredible kindness that he's given to us, the, the security, the indestructible security of our salvation the inheritance that is ours, that he's keeping for us. And we look at the way that he purifies us through suffering and makes us more like him and makes us long more for him and for our eternity with him. And the way that he has privileged us to be the recipients of all of these fulfilled promises in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Let me pray.